In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You are advised that any view expressed by the host or their guest are not necessarily the views of the owners or management of Toginet Radio, Togi Entertainment, or the Owners Group, Inc. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McVinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 6.33 All which things will be given to us? Food, drink, and clothes, it says. My children, sorry, my children used to find this difficult to believe because they know we can't go to the store and just get stuff for nothing. I've always taught them the difference between wants and needs. I think my wage earners now understand their paycheck doesn't last long with wants, but they can save out of the same paycheck when thinking needs. If we get our priorities straight, you know, put God first, then everything else does somehow follow suit. The wants seem to ride off into the sunset. No, not as in cowboy, at least not my cowboy. Good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNinney. How are you today? Well, I've got my grandson, Buddy, on the phone, and um, he's chewing on a pig's ear, and he's making um, quite a lot of noise, and my husband's just here, lured him out, thank you. The smell was getting a little bit nasty, too. I didn't know how long I could last with that. It was my fault. I gave him the pig's ear. They're really good things for keeping them quiet, but not when you're doing a radio show. So, I had a really crazy week this week. It started with our Titanic dinner party. I don't know how those people stayed slim in those days. I've never eaten so much in one sitting. We had about 15 courses and sat at the table for four hours until we could eat no more. We paced ourselves, but even so, the final dessert of eclairs and cream and coffee dunned us in. I'm glad it was not at my house. All I had to do was grab my empty dishes and leave, allow my trusty husband to drive me home in the limo and collapse, heavy laden, into bed. I also worked this week, first time in maybe 18 or 19 years. I had to leave the house by 7.30 a.m., yes, in the morning, all washed, dried, dressed and made up. That meant I had to get up at five. My Zeus son found me at six in my study and asked why I got up two and a half hours early before I had to leave. Well, there are the little details of journaling, God chat, and finishing up paperwork from my job, not to mention tea and ablutions. Gone are the days when I could get up 30 minutes before leaving and fake it. My job entailed a lot of brain work, building of new youthful grey matter, I kept reminding myself, I had to learn how to do observations, practice, and then venture forth on my mission with lots of paperwork to do and scores to compute. This is what I did. I went into the high schools in the inner city of Dallas and observed theater classes, both during and after school. Woo, and there was a big difference. I was exhausted when I rolled home at six-ish each evening. However, did I work and have a life? 
I spoke to my friend who was also doing the job and we agreed that our bodies get used to it. Why? I like my homeschool pace a lot better. Anyway, we had to interview some of the children whom we'd observed participating in a theatre activity. Our objective was to discover how much the child had actually contributed to the ideas and the activities they were doing and how much they enjoyed themselves and whether or not they'd do a similar activity again. We were trying to gauge creative input and choices. I interviewed one little boy from a class I'd watched where they were painting penne pasta to make necklaces for a play they were going to be performing at a later date. They could choose the colour of the paint they were to paint their pile of penne pasta with. They couldn't mix and match the colours or paint designs or stripes or dots, just a solid, single colour for their whole pile. It looked incredibly boring, but the children were engaged and happy and evidently loved the teacher. Did I mention we were in an ISD that served a lot of impoverished children whose parents couldn't afford after-school programs? So all these extracurricular activities being offered by the group I was working for were free. Well, free to them. So I interviewed this one boy and asked him, had he enjoyed the activity? Oh, yes, he said with enthusiasm. Incredulous, I asked, why did you enjoy it so much? And he said, I was painting macaroni. He thought that was the most amazing thing, probably something he'd never be allowed to do at home. I mean, willfully painting a member of the food group. Today, I'm looking at the spiritual mentors I had in my book while I was growing up from toddler to child to teenager and beyond and how they shaped my faith. The chapter is actually called Mind the Gap. God has always been in my life. I've been blessed with a familial spiritual presence at every stage of my physical growth. Someone who guided me from my high school, no, from my high chair to my push chair, from my nursery school to my primary school, and from my grammar school to my high school. Whether I was in Germany, England, or the Middle East, my mentors were there by my side. They made sure that I knew about the power of the Lord, Sadly, not one of these people was a godparent. However, several, several of them were family and some of them were teachers. My first spiritual mentor, guide may be a better word, but it has a lot of unsavory and not always Christian connotations, was my mother, who had learned from her mother. Mummy knelt by her bed at night before she retired, and I mean before she went to bed, not before she gave up working, and in the morning after she arose. She'd clasp her hands, close her eyes, make the sign of the cross, and pray for a few minutes. This didn't affect me, since I kept my initial impression to myself and maintain it to this day, that I can pray just as well in my bed as kneeling in the cold beside my bed. She told me that she prayed all day while she was doing housework, washing, shopping, cooking, and walking the dog. As well as praying, she offered all kinds of things up to God. The pain of going to the dentist, the angst of waiting for Daddy to come home late from the office again, while his dinner was getting burned or cold, the worry of having children. I never asked her what form these prayers or offerings took, but the message I received was that I should go through my whole life mumbling to God at every turn. I perceptively decided, while still a young teenager, that doing this would label me insane. And God, since he was all the omnis, knew what I was saying without my having to verbalise through barely moving lips. 
While growing up at home, we went to Mass on Sundays and Holy Days, but we never discussed God, said prayers or read the Bible together. My parents never went to church meetings or joined a church group. Attending Mass on Sundays was a weekly requirement, one of the papal dogmas we had to abide by, but there was a loophole. The Catholic Church added the word anticipated to its vocabulary. This meant that a Mass could be heard for the proceeding day after 5pm on the preceding day. So Sundays could be covered on Saturday evenings and Holy Days of Obligation could also be covered the evening before. These anticipated Masses were quick, about 30 minutes, no music, short sermon, fewer people. They soon became very popular because of their brevity and Saturdays today are a beloved part of the Catholic tradition. No going back to Sundays in our household. Being at Mass with my mother was another issue. She'd kneel or sit or stand in her place in the pew with her eyes closed, completely oblivious to everything going on around her. This example I also refused to follow after all. People watching was the best part of church. My mother, who played subtle observation games with me when we were not in the confines of the sanctuary, frustrated me at Mass. She never saw the hat on the woman in front of her, or the dreadful shoes that man was wearing, or the scarf which clashed, or the face the child made at communion. My brother tried to play the game with me in her stead, but he didn't have the same feminine knack for catching people at their worst. We learned through osmosis that mass was something to be endured and escaped as quickly as possible. We never stayed for coffee, talked to no one. We had nothing in common with those who lived in our London community. We were hurried through the narthex where we barely shook the priest's hand and trundled home for a cold supper. Paradoxically, priests were welcomed in our house. Catholic parish priests do that. They don't have wives or families to keep them off the streets, so they make the rounds of their parish kin. My brother and I would rush to the bookcase and break out a holy book to put on the coffee table to show the visiting clergy that we were devout. After brushing the dust off it, it would be replaced in the bookcase when the visit was over. Cups of coffee and chocolate biscuits were all the visiting priest was interested in. These pastoral visits were probably how my second spiritual influence, my paternal grandmother, got into trouble. Hers was a powerful example. During the Easter holidays and half terms at my boarding school, I couldn't go home to the Lebanon because the embassy only paid for two visits a year. The general consensus of the crowd was that Christmas and summer were the holidays to choose. I had to stay with my grandparents instead, and one Easter I learned three valuable lessons about dogma, the Catholic Church, and gossip. Nana had the distinction, or well, I thought it was distinctive at 13, of having been excommunicated for not going to Mass for several years in a row. All I could think was a fellow Catholic in my grandmother's new neighbourhood must have ratted on her. This person must have known she was a Catholic and a lapsed one at that and told her priest during a pastoral visitation. Furthermore, the priest must have been narrow-minded, big-headed and itching for power. Her ongoing sin, committed way before I was born, was too big to forgive and since she was not showing any signs of repentance, no amount of Hail Marys, Our Fathers and Hail Holy Queens could wash her soul pure white again. So, unbeknownst to her, she was thrown out of the Catholic Church. Once her personal life settled down, that is, once her husband stopped being silly and leaving her each week only to return at the weekends with his laundry and for a home-cooked meal, she decided to let God back into her life again and in the process set me a superlative example that has stayed with me to this day. 
She went to see the power-hungry priest. They stay in parishes until they die and began the long, weary road back to spiritual recovery. She faithfully did the penance bestowed upon her that lasted for years. I'd join her in the early mornings when I could and together we walked the mile to mass three times a week in all weathers. On Saturdays we'd go to confession and Sundays to high mass. The walk there was uphill. She'd do it in her silk stockings and high heels. The sight of her strong legs marching before me was indelibly impressed upon my young mind. Born from it came my habit of weekday masses. My third spiritual influence was my nunnery, the convent of Jesus and Mary, where I was sent from Lebanon at the tender and impressionable age of 13. There I was endowed with an unwavering trust in the Lord. The nuns turned to God for everything. You should have heard the kind of stuff they prayed for, everyday stuff, not just big world problems like wars. And I will continue after these messages. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer, Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Mind Matters is the show that dares to ask what's on your mind. Take this opportunity to join Dr. Larry Ross, clinical psychologist and Joan Duhane, licensed clinical social worker, as they combined have over 50 years of experience in dealing with your mind. Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, only on Toginet Radio. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. So for the nuns, God was a fellow resident in the manor house where we lived. He was the master of all trades. He could fix anything from a leaky radiator to a wayward teenager. They prayed for fair weather on fate days, rain for the crops in the kitchen garden, a gentle southerly wind when the silo plant was particularly pungent and drifting our way. 
more intelligent than that. I knew that God could see it all, so I asked about the big stuff like safe flights home and good exam results. Honestly, while I laughed with my friends about the daily inclusion of God in our very mundane lives, I later realized how fortunate I was to have had a foundation of faith built for me by God's best construction workers in the world, hard-headed, one-track-minded Irish nuns. Their faith that God was incredibly interested in every little bit of gossip they desired to impart to him had me amazed. God had a whole world to look after, countries I'd never even heard of, and yet he still found time to minister to these nuns. Although I knew the dictionary meaning of the word omnipotence back then, its full meaning was not revealed to me until my faith began to strengthen in later years. Well, my guest today is Laureen Hudson. Laureen is a writer, professional editor, scuba diver. No, well, she's a scuba diver because she's a scuba instructor, a beginning sailor, a traveler and obsessive researcher who's chiefly focused on and delighted with her husband, Jason, and her sons, Rowan, Kestrel and her daughter, Aurora. Laureen homeschools her children aboard a boat and was featured in MSNBC's week-long article on homeschooling called A Movable Feast Homeschooling in the World. Hello, Laureen. Hi there. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Uh, you know, I'm holding up, holding up. <laughs> yeah, well, you said to me that you would be um, right in the middle of it with your children at this time. So what's going on? Um, actually, they're, um, because of this interview, um, their father took off from work early, so he is out running around with them. Uh, okay. And we're we're in the midst of a whole bunch of serial rainstorms, so it, it's nice that they're, you know, getting out and having a little uh, little exercise before it pours on us again. And um, I want you to explain to my listeners exactly um, what you are um, doing, where you live, because we're all presuming, you see, that you live in a house, even though I mentioned <laughs> that you lived on a boat. I really don't believe people really think that you actually live on a boat and don't have a house. So um, explain that and, and the reason why you're doing that. Um, well, basically, the, the short story is that, um, you know, sort of like typical Americans, um, my husband and I, you know, got married and we had, you know, the car and we had the dog and we had, um, you know, the jobs and then we bought the house and, and, and all of the, you know, the little tick marks that you're supposed to accumulate as you grow up. And um, uh, right about the time of my second child, I, I realized that this was not the life I wanted for me or the life I wanted for them either. It was not what I wanted to be when I grew up. And um, my husband and I had a couple of long talks, and I am I am really lucky in that I am married to a man with whom I am wired in parallel. And um, and he was like, "Well, you know, what do you want to do?" I was like, "Let's go on a boat and sail around the world." And he said, "Okay." And it was just like that. It was just that simple. Like, okay. Uh-huh. And, and and I thought, okay, well, he blew me off, but you know, I'm going to stick to this. I, I really, you know, I really want to get out of this whole rat race sort of existence. Mm-hmm. And the next morning, I got up out of bed, and he was already at the computer shopping for boats. And I said, well, heck, <laughs> I guess it'll work anyway. He called so, my bluff. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't actually a bluff. I just didn't think he was as ready to shift as I was, and, yeah. and he totally was. 
Mm-hmm. He totally was. But, you know, it, our culture doesn't present you with a lot of alternatives. Ours is not a culture that encourages you to have crazy dreams and act on them. Ours is a, courage that in, is a culture that encourages you to pick a goal and, you know, do the right thing and, and be very widget cranky about your life. And, mm-hmm. and herring off to do something entertaining is pretty wildly frowned upon uh, in most places. So I really wasn't expecting him to sort of throw it all to the wind and say, yeah, let's go do something different, but here we are. So we live on a 47-foot catamaran, um, and right now we're at a marina in Emeryville, which is the backside of San Francisco Bay in California. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're looking at um, moving along uh, starting in March and moseying down the coast and seeing what's next after that. Okay, so how long have you been on this boat? Four years now. Four years, and have you been at the same marina, or have you been moving around? Um, we've moved around a little bit. We settled into this marina because it's very uh, liveaboard friendly. Not all marinas enjoy having people living on their boats there, mm-hmm. but the harbor master here really supports community. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, like, you know, we, everybody celebrates everybody's birthday, and we have big Halloween things. Um, the, the first year we moved here, I asked um, if anybody was up for trick-or-treating, because, of course, I have small children and, you know, Halloween, trick-or-treating. But instead of doing trick-or-treat, we have this huge uh, bonfire, and everybody brings, you know, sort of the traditional, old-style Halloween stuff, you know, homemade food, uh, rather than, you know, bags of Snickers. So it's it's um it's a really kind of focused small town kind of feel here. So we're 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 very happy here. You know, it's funny that you should say that because my father, when he well, probably about ten years ago, I said to him well, what do you? What would you really have wanted to do with your life? Because he came from the old school of, you know, you get a job, he, he worked in the civil service and got a good pension and was worried that neither myself or my brother wanted to follow that route. And my parents were just, you know, obsessed with pensions and retirement and all that kind of stuff. And I'm mm-hmm. going, oh, that's mm-hmm. a long way away. I don't even want to think about that. So I said to him, what would you have done if you, could, if you didn't have to be obsessed with all of this? And he said, I'd have bought a boat and I would have sailed around the world. Now, my father couldn't even swim when I was 10. He learned how to swim when I was 10. And for that to be his dream, I thought, how sad that I never knew that that was his dream. I'd never been on a boat with him. He had, you know, this was something that he had, it was literally a dream. He would have had to have gone out and learned how to sail and gotten the boat. I thought, I'm never going to do that. I do not want to get to an age where I cannot, if I decide that I want to do something, go ahead and do it or look back and go, oh, I wish I'd done that. And now I can't do that because I'm too old or something like that. So, you know, more power to you. I think that's fantastic. I was talking to somebody actually yesterday and said, you know, America's the place where if you come up with a good idea, you can do it. You've got to be brave enough, but you can do anything really here. It's, um, it's really scary. I think that the bravery <laughs> thing is important and, and all of the um, sort of cultural landmarks are are pointed against you for sure. I can't tell you the number of people who have, um, you know, basically just attacked me for, well, you know, if you were a responsible parent, you'd be working your guts out at a desk job and, you know, filling their college fund and, you know, looking to your own retirement. And and honestly, by doing this move by those lights, we're being really irresponsible. But I think the world is changing a lot, and the old school, you know, like your father was from, where you actually had a pension you could count on, yeah, 
I think those days are long gone, and I think we're looking at a completely different model of success now than we ever used to. So I think that adhering to the old steps to success doesn't really do anybody a whole lot of good. And and frankly, the, the other thing that really kicked us into doing everything we could to make this lifestyle work is I really like my kids. And, and I know that's almost heretical um, in mainstream American culture to say that, but it's mm-hmm. true. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was very lucky in that I worked for a company that strongly encouraged telecommuting. So I was still physically at home. I could still nurse my babies on demand. I could still be there for lunch, be there for dinner, be there for, you know, I, I could involve myself in their lives. But, um, you know, the day that my eight-week maternity leave was over, I sat and held my baby and sobbed. Oh, you know, I know, and then, I know what that was like. Yeah, exactly. And 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 then you know, I did the same thing with the next baby, and I did the same thing with the next baby. Like this is so pathological that our 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 success model is built on having children and yet getting away from them as fast as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, my husband and I were just like, you know, this is not. This is not what we want. We want something different. And if it means, you know, we have to sacrifice independent retirement, if it means we have to sacrifice, you know, having their college tuition completely paid for by the time they get there, you know, so be it. Mm-hmm. We will have at least had the years we had. Yeah, and I think you're you're showing your children that there are alternatives. You know, you don't have to get caught up in this rat race, and especially with with the way the world is going, they have, you, they have to look for alternatives. Because what if they're not heavy into college, brilliantly academic, and get their degrees and stuff like that? They've got to be able to go other routes. So you're just showing them that you know there are other ways to live. Oh, I think this is wonderful for kids. I, I just think the fact that you're dedicated to be with your children and they're they're not going to be there forever you're going to do exactly what you've always wanted to do and you know you're going to have no regrets so that's what i'm thinking i mean you know financially it's going to be a little weird and a lot of my my friends who are still holding down two desks or you know we don't have the toys don't have the stuff i mean we have this like old nasty beater hand-me-down minivan from hell. You know, it's just horrible. And people are like, you know, your, your vehicle is disreputable. It's awful. And I'm oh. like, well, yeah. But, you know, I laid down and took a nap with my kids today in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what about the other people living on the marina? Do they have regular lives or are they all, you know, sort of, do they homeschool? Are they living, you know, because of the same reason you are on the boats? Um, there's actually one other homeschooling family here in the marina um, and they're heading to do the same thing. We are about a year after us. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the marina's boat living tends to attract hardcore iconoclasts, so there's a lot of very colorful individuals here, mm-hmm. and and that's another really excellent lesson for the children mm-hmm. is that you have to judge character on character. You cannot mm-hmm. judge character on appearance. And that's another message that's very counterculture mm-hmm. right now. You know, we have an entire advertising industry that is directed towards making you feel unhappy with what you have or, you know, inadequate with what you've got. And it's kind of neat, you know, running around the arena, running into people, you know, who look just awful and they're covered with 
you know, petroleum and they and they reek and of uh, fish and then they're hideous. And they're on these, you know, multi million dollar yachts. Yeah. And you know, you just you really learn. It's like, you know, meet the person and take them at face value and, and don't get all hung up on appearances and stuff. Yeah. For those of you who are just joining us, I'm talking to Laureen Hudson, who lives without school on a boat in a marina in California with her husband and three children. So join us for more after this short break. And um, Laureen will be back in about 90 seconds. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Parents, if you feel overloaded, overworked, underappreciated, and seriously stressed out, the Parents' Plate is here to help you. The Parents' Plate with Brenda Nixon, Tuesday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on Toginet. It's time to build stronger families through parent empowerment, and that's what the Parents' Plate does. The Parents' Plate understands the busyness of life and balancing child rearing and other commitments. Brenda Nixon will be talking to noted experts and authors on all issues, from teething to teen driving. Brenda Nixon is a nationally recognized speaker to parents and child care professionals and author of the award-winning The Birth to Five book. From Fox 4 in Kansas City to schools and synagogues to businesses to bookstores, conferences to churches, audiences rave that Brenda engages, educates, and encourages. For more information on Brenda and her books, check out her website, brendanixon.com. The Parents' Plate is loaded with information and affirmation. The Parents' Plate with Brenda Nixon. Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Mark Lipinski is coming to Toginet. It's Creative Mojo with Mark Lipinski. A live two-hour show Wednesday afternoon starting at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Creative Mojo. It's fun, entertaining, informative, inspirational, and illuminating. Lipinski has worked on such shows as Oprah, The View, The Joan Rivers Show, and Ricky Lake. He's busy, but he's got the drive to share with Creative Mojo, dedicated to the modern crafter and crafting lifestyle. Dive into the info and enjoy everything from celebs to entertainment news to recipes, quilting and needlework, knitting, painting, woodworking, Christmas crafts, and so much more. This show boldly encourages you to discover and harness your own creative spirit by living creatively every day. For more on Mark and the show, check out marklepinski.com. Don't miss the fun. It's Creative Mojo with Mark Lipinski. Wednesday afternoon starting at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Well, Laureen, you wouldn't be on my show if you weren't um, somebody who lives without school. Those are your words. I like those words. So tell me <laughs> what made you decide um, to forego the institution? Um, <laughs> that's kind of a, a long and winding journey. Um, the short form is that um, I'm... I'm a researcher. I, I read everything. I study everything. I want to know more. 
And right after I finished plowing my way through the mountain of books on, you know, pregnancy and early childhood, I started in on the books about early education. And I read everybody. (laughs) I read everybody. And the more I read, the more I realized that, you know, nobody, and and, and this, this is true for decisions about, you know, about healthcare and about nurturing and about family and about everything else, but nobody is as much of an expert on their child as that child's parent is. Absolutely. And, you know, there was no way I was going to take, you know, like I said, you know, at, at eight weeks, you know, I sat and held my baby and I cried. Mm-hmm. And I thought, am I really going to send this little person off to an institution to do God only knows what for, you know, five or six hours a day? And then I, 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 <laughs> the whole thing seemed so outlandish to me. And then I started visiting schools. And talking to teachers and talking to administrators. And then my oldest son, who is eight now, um, started expressing himself. You know, he got past all the, the little baby stuff and started, you know, really letting us know who he was and how he thought and how, how he connected the dots in his own particular way. And I figured out almost immediately that there was no way my son was going to excel in a school environment. It was just not going to happen. Well, and if he if he was put into a school environment and made to fit in, you would be able to tell that that wasn't the real him. You know, you know what I mean. You just you just oh, go. Yeah. That's not really who my son is meant to be. It's somebody who's had to conform to whatever somebody wants him to be, you know. So when when he was, I think five, um, we enrolled him in swimming classes, <clears throat> you know, because as you do, and <laughs> he got thrown out of swim class for swimming <laughs> because the teacher, you know, you saw all these like little four and five year old kids, right? And the pool is cold and they're freezing and they're chattering, and the teacher has them hanging onto the edge of the pool, listening to her give instructions. And <laughs> hello, they're four and five, right? And this teacher is like, blah, 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 blah. And like Charlie Brown's parents, it was insane. And the kids are getting colder and colder and colder and colder. And Rowan finally looked at her, looked over at me. I was sitting in the bleachers, looked at her again and just let go of the edge and dropped down and started swimming circles around her legs. (laughs) And she was so angry that he had thwarted her authority that she threw him out of class. And I just, I just love being able to say that I have a child who was thrown out of swim class for swimming. Yeah. <laughs> just, I think that's fabulous. You know? But I, that really, really brought it home to me. It's like, you know, he's not, he's not wired like most kids. He doesn't have um, that obedience gene. But mm-hmm. the, the other point at which I knew that um, a, a classroom environment was not going to serve him was he was working with his letters. And he... Um, he wrote, you know, as, as small children do, in great big block capital letters. And this may be tough for your listeners to visualize, but, but it's a neat trick. His, his little brother's name is Kestrel, like the, the hawk. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to write his brother's name. So he sat down with a piece of paper, and he wrote a big capital K and a big capital E and a big capital S. Only he did the S backwards. And his father, my husband Jason, walked by as he was doing it and looked down at the paper and said, Hey, pal, the S is backwards. Not wrong, mind you. 
backwards. And Rowan sat there and stared at that piece of paper for a solid minute. I mean, literally, 60 seconds, he stared at that paper. And then he flipped the paper around 180 degrees and wrote a backwards T, a backwards R, a backwards E, and a backwards L. And he had written his brother's name in perfect orientation in mirror writing. All right. <laughs> because both the K and the E flip. Yeah. And then that's how his brain is wired. Those letters were were uh, figures that could be rearranged in three-dimensional space. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter that the S wasn't the right way for the word Kestrel. It mm-hmm. became the right way if he was allowed to invert it and mirror write it. And, you know, and I'm looking at him going, wow, Da Vinci did that. So we had this great talk about Leonardo da Vinci and the mirror writing and, and you know, da-da-da. And it, it launched this beautiful discussion mm-hmm. that, that had he been in a kindergarten classroom would have been, that is wrong, do it yeah. over. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, oh, we can do so much better than that. Yeah. Well, getting back to your boat and your sailing, um, your children can swim, I take it. Like little fishes, yeah. Like little fishes. And you say you're a beginning sailor? Yeah. Is that scary? Yeah. Is, your hus- is your husband a, a seasoned sailor? Um, he's, I could say he's a moderate sailor. Neither one of us is hugely experienced. Mm-hmm. So we're Are not you going to stay within sight of the coast? Pretty much. We're going to, uh, it's called gunk holing, and we're going to gunk hole down the coast of California, and we're going to, you know, sort of pop in and out of Mexico and, and kind of take it easy and, and get our legs under us. I mean, like you said about your father, you know, just because you don't have 100% of the skills doesn't mean you can't get moving that direction. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So um, are you planning it? I mean, do you know where you're going to stop along the way and that kind of thing? No, it's, it's completely interest-driven at this point. So how do you know if there's a marina that you can go dock in if a storm comes in or something like that? You know, there are marinas every place. There's coves every place. The the California and Mexican coasts are extremely well-traveled. We've got, you know, charts and books and and whatnot. And we've had friends, you know, do this route a gazillion times ahead of us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can actually not sail overnight the entire way down the California coast. Oh, okay. So, like, from from one cove to the next, you know, move to the next cove, drop the anchor. Okay, pull it up the next morning, move to the next one, drop the anchor again. You know, that kind of thing. And so So what do you do when you land? How, I mean, say you want to go on shore, how are you going to get around? We have have what's called a dinghy. Most boats have a dinghy or a tender. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a little tiny boat that's hung off the back of the main boat. And you just Mm -hmm. hop in that and head to shore. And when you're on shore, you'll just walk? Or have we have bicycles as well. Oh, okay, okay. So shopping, what about supplies and stuff like that? See, I'm being practical. Supplies, um, <laughs> food, and that yeah, kind of no, thing. No, so supplies and, and all of that kind of thing. In most of the cruiser sort of friendly areas, there are actually grocery services. But you can always, you know, hire a taxi just to haul your purchases. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have, you know, backpacks, and the bikes have uh, panniers on them, so... You know, you can haul stuff around that way. There's so, always a way to get around stuff like that. Oh, I'm sure. Where there's a will, there's a way. Um, exactly. So so are you still going to be working? Are you going to be able to work? I, I am mean, doing bits and pieces of, uh, of contract work. There is startlingly good Internet, believe it or not, um, pretty much everywhere at this point. I am um, – there's – 
excellent wireless signal for the entire distance of San Francisco Bay. So you can literally be out in the middle of the bay and still be connected. Mm-hmm. There is excellent Wi-Fi five miles offshore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you can actually still be connected to the Internet and be completely out in the ocean, out of sight. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I've spoken to um, a family that were uh, just leaving the Fiji Islands and they're heading to Australia. They were also on that in that same article that you were in. And mm-hmm. um, they, they said, we can't talk. We have no Internet connection from now until the middle of November when we land in Australia. And I went, OK. They said, call us yeah. in the middle of, of November. And I'm thinking, that would be scary, I would think. But maybe they've got islands on the way all the way down or something like that. So well, that would be the difference. Actually, they're, um, they're really dear friends of mine. I, I pointed Laura Coffey to them for oh, that really? article. She was like, oh, I want to talk to you. I'm like, you really need to talk to the Giffords because they are amazing and inspirational and fabulous. Um, they don't have Internet, but what they have is single sideband radio. So they're still in uh, communication. It's just mm-hmm. very, 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 very low bandwidth communication. Mm-hmm. So we still hear from them, you know, every couple of days. Oh, right. Well, that's great. We have, you know, signal. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Well, and there's another family that's cycling around America on their bikes and using a whole lot more energy than than uh, I would if I was going on a on a boat or a, <laughs> or in an RV. I've I've spoken to people that have done the RV um, homeschooling, well, RV schooling actually they call it. So yours is boat schooling. Right. And um, explain the lifestyle cruising because it's not just homeschool um, homeschoolers or unschoolers. Those are people that live on boats, right? Right. Cruising. Yeah. 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 Um, is there anything like, do you know anything about the houseboats? We have a houseboat community in England, in Chelsea, on the Thames. Right. Yeah, yeah. And those are barges, though. They're not catamarans, I don't think. There's, they're kind of exactly, yeah. Those are not designed for industrial sailing. This boat that we live on has been around the world twice with the prior owner. So oh, really? it's a very, very seaworthy vessel. It's part of what we loved about it is it's capable of going really, really fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you know, the sailboat fast. Sailboats don't actually move all that rapidly. Um, so yours, yours is a sailboat. It's a catamaran sailboat. Do you have an engine, though? Yes, a little bit of an outboard? We, we do. Yeah, we, we do actually have two inboard engines. So oh. we have capability of motoring, but we're much faster under sail than we are under motor. So it's very environmentally sound that way. And so all of your children are kind of familiar with um, putting up the sails and bringing them down? And Absolutely. You know, it, yeah, it's that... one, of the, one of my homeschooling sort of... Uh, moments. You know, anyone who's going through homeschooling has those moments of sort of wobble or doubt or like, am I doing mm-hmm. this right? Am I doing this mm-hmm. wrong? Whatever. And the real danger with this lifestyle is that you're putting too much on them. Mm-hmm. Rowan mm-hmm. has been helping drive the boat since he was five. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point in time, he had the visual, spatial uh, ability to pilot the boat, you know, to run it down the fairway, to keep it on the right side of, of other boats. You know, he mm-hmm. understood the rules of the road kind of not great. I mean, I never turned him loose with the boat, no. but he yeah, he was the yeah. one at the helm, you yeah. know. I mean, yeah. he was so, he'd like step up like, you know, I have the helm. I was like, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Laureen, we've come to the end of our time and I've really enjoyed talking to you and I wish you every success next year on your venture and um, I'll keep in touch with you over the email. Um, you have a thank great so weekend much. and um, thank you for joining me this afternoon. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye. Bye.
How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNitty, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Everyday Autism Miracles with Shannon Pinrod. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Life after an autism spectrum diagnosis doesn't have to be difficult. It can be joyful, happy, and filled with hope. Join Shannon Penrod, author, speaker, coach, and mom of a six-year-old recovering from autism for this inspirational hour of hope. She's even authored a series of children's autism books with her son, Jim. For more information about the books, Shannon, and Everyday Autism Miracles, go to her website, shannonpenrod.com. From there, you can also get to her other websites, blogs, and connections. On Everyday Autism Miracles, you'll hear stories from parents whose children have made miraculous strides. You'll also get the inside dish on therapies, treatments, supplements, and how to get funding to help you afford them. Miracles abound in the autism community. So tune in for Everyday Autism Miracles to listen, share, laugh, and surround yourself with hope. Everyday Autism Miracles with Shannon Penrod. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginet. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Well, before I started homeschooling, I thought having family time meant spending quality time with my children when my job allowed. The small amount of time I spent with them had to count. So I'd read a book to them at bedtime, sing a song with them in the car on the way to school. I'd watch a movie with them at the weekend, let them share my lab. I'd snuggle with them for a few minutes after bath time before I had to dash off to a meeting, or I'd drop them off at a birthday party. These precious moments of quality time went reasonably well as long as no one was ill or tired or crabby or jealous of the other sibling or had had a bad day. The scheduled quality time could just as easily be spent pouting, in timeout, in tears, or angry. When I started homeschooling, I realized just how much time I had not spent with my children. I found I was spending quantity time, which sometimes turned into quality time with them. I quickly discovered that the latter was spontaneous, surprising, unscheduled, and unexpected. I also grew closer to my children. We rebuilt the relationships we'd lost to the time spent at school, participating in extracurricular activities and doing mountains of homework. Sometimes I felt like a single parent while my husband had a job that demanded extensive and prolonged periods of travel away from home. After several consecutive weeks of being both mum and dad, I really began to feel as though I was going it alone. Of course, I had the steady income, which helped me feel financially secure, and I had the daily phone calls, which helped me feel loved and supported. But I didn't have the warm and fuzzy feeling of knowing that half the parental unit was going to walk through the front door any minute and relieve me every day. One day, I actually met a single mother who homeschooled her children. She taught piano lessons and art, and when her children got older, they also taught to augment their income or to give them some pocket money. I don't know. I just know that I wondered, 
How does she do it? In my ignorance, I presume she had money from her late husband's estate or a good life insurance policy. That's if she was a widow. According to a survey that Mike Donnelly of Homeschool Legal Defense Association conducted, widows represent only 8 to 10% of the single parents who homeschool. Other single parents fall into the categories of divorced or single, each with their own set of challenges. Some single parents live on less than $25,000 a year, and they all have to manage the demands of providing for, protecting, and educating their family. How do they do it? Well, single homeschooling parents are creative. In Mike's words, they're walking miracles. They tutor, they work from home, find weekend and nighttime jobs that can accommodate the daytime schedule of the homeschool. Some have supported family, supportive family, flexible jobs and ministering churches. Some do not. I know how difficult it is to balance a job and a family. So for a single parent, the incentive to keep their children out of the public and private school systems must be very strong. In the end, according to Mike, all the single homeschooling parents he spoke to were glad they did it. So what is the incentive? Mike, a product of a single parent family, found that school is difficult for a child whose parents are in the throes of divorce who, or who has suddenly had some kind of disruptive event occur that threatens their security at home. It's understandable that the natural reaction of the parents is to put the children back in school and go out to work. But staying in the homeschool is the best thing that can happen to this child, regardless of the struggle to balance schedules, says Mike. In the end, there's a closeness between the children and parent that is in danger of being jeopardized by the number of hours spent under other people's supervision and direction. As a homeschooling family, we've had time to sit around with each other and say nothing or everything. We've had time to be irritated, pouty, sad, tired, happy, silly. We can sprawl on the floor and nap together, Feed the ducks every day if we want to. Wade in the creek. Oh, so many things. And as they grow older and I grow mellow, I was there when they really needed me. To listen when my daughter had a falling out with her best friend and show compassion each time the saga developed another twist. To hug my son when he came home after a rare bad day at work. These dramas have a way of becoming unresolved if there's not an available pair of ears or encircling arms the moment they're needed. I'm not saying I'm always there at all times for all crises in my children's lives. I leave that mammoth task to God, but I am saying, as my children grew accustomed to using me as a great and wise sounding board, they turn to me first because I've taken the time to create a close relationship with them. They tend to tell me a lot. Sometimes they tell me too much. I don't judge. I listen. That's what they need. After all, I've known them all their life. I know them better than anyone else in the world. Let's pray for all those single-parent homeschooling families in our community for investing their time in their children against great odds. We know how challenging it can be even when both parents are pulling together with a common vision for their family. And visit hslda.org for more information on homeschooling and parental rights. Now, time for question of the week. I'm here to solve your problems and help you with your challenges at any stage in your homeschooling career. So here goes nothing. How do you deal with a child who cannot move through a test without getting hung up on an early problem? Asked one of my listeners. I actually believe that a lot of tests today are done on computer where you have to answer the question in sequence. 
When my oldest son took his college entrance exam, it listed lasted five hours and covered the three R's. And I'm going to explain that to you, so don't hold up your hand with the answer unless you want to age yourself. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. He was given all the tests at the start of the session. I trained him to read the essay prompt first, so he had it simmering on the back burner of his brain till he was ready to compose. I advised him to do the math segment early on in the test while his brain was fresh, but to move through it as quickly as possible doing the problems he could do with the least amount of effort first and go back later to tackle the more challenging problems. Then I told him to go to the reading portion for about 30 minutes at a time and flip-flop between the math and reading for a while. Finally, I suggested he go to the writing prompt. This way, some of the ideas and vocabulary in the reading portion of the test, which he had already done, may have stirred some creative cells. I told him to use all five hours, regardless of whether he was finished early or not. There's always room for improvement and math problems can be reworked to check answers. When it was time for my youngest to take the college entrance exam, she had to work it on computer. In sequence, no flipping back and forth. And when the testers calculated her score, she was finished, regardless of whether she'd been working on it for five minutes or 50 minutes. So my earlier advice to my son did not apply here. Tests in homeschool and in college classes can take both forms. But I think it's important to instill in your child the quality of flexibility. Getting stuck on problem number four when there's a 50-problem test is not going to award anyone a passing grade. They need to be able to plow through the questions, answering them or skipping over them, and return to the nagging problems at the end. I always showed my children how ensuing questions may hold the secret to the answer of a previous problem, especially in science and history tests. Some children's learning styles will not allow them to be flexible, so some creativity is necessary here. First, acknowledge the strengths of a child who likes to follow directions. These children have an inner policing system that will not allow them to jump around on the page doing what they want to do first. No picking and choosing for these little people. This, in a way, is good. God tells us that in order to follow him and gain salvation, we cannot pick and choose the rules we think we may like to obey. Their delight is in the law of the Lord, and they meditate on his law day and night, David says in Psalm 1. As long as we obey the laws, do we have to do them in strict sequence? I think not. Better the child who attempts to answer all the problems eventually, whether in order or not, than the child who cannot move on to the next question until he's answered the previous one. Therein lies a problem. So what to do to encourage flexibility? I used to reassign the problem sheets and math exercises so that my son moved all over the place, eventually tackling every problem on the sheet in order as I had devised. Or I'd tell them to start from the end and work backwards. Word problems were always a challenge and a literal stumbling block for my youngest son. I'd read these through with him when he was ready to tackle them. Eventually, each child learned to decide for themselves which numbers they wanted to do first. One of my children deliberately left the easy problems until last as her reward. One of the other child would number his page in sequence and then work the problems out of sequence and still be able to hand me a paper with sequential answers. Another way to encourage flexibility is to always find a silver lining. If it rains on a picnic day, for example, party in the car. We had good practice at this in England. If we let the rain rule the day, then we'd never go out. Spread a tablecloth on the large bed and eat sandwiches while drinking the proverbial cups of tea. This idea has been carried into early adulthood and not only on rainy days. We still congregate in the room where work is going on to have our afternoon tea, biscuit and chatter. 
If an audition doesn't go well, sign up to work backstage as crew. Everyone can still be involved in a different way. My daughter, as mentioned last week, has carried her flexibility ability over into her late teen years by always having plan B in case things don't work out. In fact, there's a joke that Jesus was going with plan B when he came to earth to fulfill his father's salvation plan. Who would have had as their first choice for the most important rescue in the world? Illiterate fishermen, dishonest tax collectors, women of the night and hot-headed zealots who started out persecuting the new Christians. I know you can help your child grow comfortable with moving on and skipping over, then coming back. It's the glory of homeschool. Get out of the classroom and move away from legalism. Just because a page is numbered 1 to 10 does not mean it has to be completed in that order. And when they get to college, they will be so flexible, they'll be able to make anything work for them. So send your questions to angloUK84 at gmail.com or leave me a comment on my TogiNet page. I really need to let my children go. My husband tells me, my body tells me, and who else? My children tell me, and I can't keep up with them anymore. I've been practicing ever since my oldest left for college, but the trouble is they come back just as I'm getting used to having one less child. So I'm a seesaw of emotions and need tos. For the most part, I'm pretty good at letting them take control of their working lives, but subconsciously I'm still mum. The two children who still live at home get up too early for me to volunteer to rouse them, except this week when I beat them to the garage each morning. They set their many alarms. Yes, multiple alarms go off in their rooms each morning at evenly spaced intervals, which, as I've pointed out to them, their bodies have memorised. Some of the alarms are those mosquito tones that I can't hear, thankfully. Summer tones I can hear, groan. When awake, they move around the house in the wee hours before dawn and are out before I'm ready to get up. They always pop into my bedroom to say goodbye. Hubby rolls over. I sit up just to prove I'm alert. I'm with them in the conscious world. I challenge them to have a great day and then fall back to sleep when I hear the door bang. But whether I want to or not, I am always awake before their alarm sequences start just waiting for stirrings in the nether parts of the house. I call both of them still asleep when it's past time for them to be leaving. I do it without an alarm, just the ever-vigilant mum genes actively working within. This week, I woke up after an uninterrupted night's sleep. I reiterate, a rare uninterrupted night's sleep. And looked at my clock, which read to 6.20 a.m. Malia had to be at work at 6. So I rushed upstairs and said, it's past 6 o'clock, Malia. I had to repeat myself. And then I ran downstairs, turned off the burglar alarm and caught sight of my atomic kitchen clock that said 5.20. Oops, it's fallen back early, I thought. It does that. But then Malia dragged herself to the landing and said, it's only 5.20, Mom. Sorry, my clock must have sprung forward an hour when I was dusting it, which it had. So I've used up another whole hour, so I'll bid you farewell. And thank you for my faithful husband. My guest, Laureen, my listeners, Hannah, Tina, St. John's and Blythe. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show his kindness and have mercy on you. May the Lord watch over you and give you peace. I'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for joining us for the Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Toginet.